Hello and welcome to episode number 186 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. And in this episode, we hear from Chardash Ungar. She's a professor in the Department of Political Science and International Relations at Istanbul's Marmara University and one of Turkey's top China experts. She recently wrote a very interesting paper for the Carnegie Endowment called China is Playing by Turkey's Media Rules. Before that, she also authored a detailed report for the Middle East Institute titled The Chinese Vaccine and Its Discontents, China's Public Debate on Sinovac During the Covid Crisis. In both of those, she digs deep into Turkey-China political and economic ties, Turkish public perceptions of China, Turkey's complicated position in the question of China's treatment of its Uyghur minority, and Beijing's efforts to craft its message to public opinion in Turkey. We talk about all those themes and much else in our conversation. But before we get started, remember you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders, and ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Chardash Ungerd. As she writes in her Carnegie report, Turkey has a more favorable public opinion on China compared to many Western allies. A poll conducted by the German Marshall Fund in 2021 showed that 34% of Turkish respondents viewed China's influence in global affairs either positively or very positively. What's more, Beijing is still ranked well below the US in public opinion polls about external threat perceptions. I started by asking Chardash Ungar to set the scene for this by painting a broader picture of relations between Ankara and Beijing in the 20th century. In contrast to ties between Turkey and the Soviet Union, there was actually only very minimal contact between Turkey and the People's Republic of China during the 20th century. So I asked her whether it's right to describe relations between Ankara and Beijing as almost non-existent until the last couple of decades. Yes, I would say uh, Sino-Turkish relations remained rather limited. I mean, no actual uh, interactions. There are few exceptions to this. One is the Korean War, in which, you know, Chinese side participated, you know, by sending a voluntary army. It was not official participation. I mean, they wouldn't declare war or anything, but uh, they were there and uh, the Turkish brigade was there. So there was actual 
fighting for a while. And uh, we, we know for a fact that there are, you know, memoirs on this, that battleground, those experiences, you know, sort of provided an early perception of, of China during the Cold War. This is like early 1950s. But the historical narratives of that period, like Cold War anti-communism, got sort of mingled with the previous historical legacy, such as the Turkish nationalistic historiography on, uh, you know, Central Asia and how nomadic tribes, which are considered by historians to be our distant relatives, which is, you know, part of the school textbooks, I mean, in, in history classes, etc., so that that sort of ancient pre-modern uh, history got mingled with anti-communism. So the, the perception of China as an enemy got interwoven into the narrative that sort of gave us like a starting point. China as an enemy, perception of China in, in negative terms, etc. You have it in the 1950s. And of course, there is no diplomatic recognition until the early 1970s. So the, the positive story or real interactions, economic dynamism, etc. that lagged really behind. There was no such prospect for a long while. And uh, I guess Cold War actually became one of the pillars, one of the important components of our understanding of China, sort of became like a long-term impact on China's perceptions in Turkey. So I, I think 20th century would mostly remain uh, no contact or very little contact episode for both countries. And obviously that, that perspective has changed in recent years. Turkey-China relations have really deepened economically in particular. And you recently published a paper for Carnegie and it basically looks at China's media influence in Turkey. And you talk about how China's tried to increase its media presence in Turkey, tried to strengthen its arguments in the Turkish media. And you look at the successes and the failures of that strategy and what shape things have been taking. And you basically argue the core argument of that paper is that China's propaganda outlets in Turkey produce little Turkish language content that actually resonates with domestic Turkish audiences. And you also say that Turkey has few explicitly pro-China voices and no sizable Chinese community. So that points to the weakness, essentially, of Beijing's media apparatus, media presence in Turkey. There's very limited Turkish language content and pretty limited reach as well, especially in comparison with other outside forces. And you say that as a result of that, the Chinese Communist Party has, quote, been compelled to gradually acknowledge the significance of local actors in Turkey. Beijing has come to understand that elevating China's image in Turkey would depend mostly on cooperation with local media actors who, for one reason or another, may share China's values or agenda. Now it's engaging with them, with input from the Turkish government and various intellectual circles, rather than on Chinese players in an attempt to advance its goals. So could you just open this up a bit and talk about what that strategy, what that shift means in practice? Sure. I just uh, told you about the exceptions from the Cold War uh, period. You know, there there were very uh, little, there was very little interaction. And one of those interactions was Radio Peking or China Radio International's previous version. I mean, Cold War version, which basically propagated Mao Zedong thought throughout the, you know, uh, mid-1960s or so. 
this radio shortwave broadcasts Chinese radio had had a Turkish version Turkish language version which started broadcasting in 1957 so even at a time where there was no diplomatic recognition no official interactions between China and Turkey you had this small uh, media outlet which was broadcasting directly trying to reach directly Turkish audiences uh, Turkish speakers so this goes way back to the Cold War years but We know for a fact that they had a rather small audience and probably uh, most of those listeners were just tuning into Chinese broadcasts because they were pretty much, you know, in tune with their ideology. They liked to hear about China and they were probably attracted to Mao Zedong thought and Maoist ideology at the time. And those broadcasts continue today. The institution, the name has changed. Uh, it's called China Radio International today. And the content is much less ideological in nature, as opposed to what you had in the mid-1960s uh, or late 1950s, obviously. There's a lot of entertainment. They would play Turkish pop music. They would broadcast much more colorful content, aside from the news, etc., on China. But my understanding, and from what we see on social media, of course, the feedback is tricky. It's very hard to find actual numbers about listeners. But from what, what I, I understand, putting in, in relative terms, like in, in comparative terms, for instance, with other Western broadcasters or Western media outlets, you see that they still have a relatively small audience, especially the explicitly, you know, propagandistic content and if i if you put it in relative terms like for instance if you if you try to compare it with what china is doing in several african countries today for instance cctv has a branch in nairobi and they are actually providing content they are producing content just for the african audiences basically trying to sort of edit the whole content trying to make it more pleasing to the african audiences we don't really see that in turkey I I mean, both Xinhua and China Radio International, of course, they, they publish, they, they broadcast in Turkish. But first of all, they have they have a small audience and the, the content is basically translations from the Chinese version or uh, the, the English template version. So they are not really tailored towards the Turkish audience's taste. Now, I, I of course, I don't know this. I don't have connections into the propaganda establishment myself, but my understanding is that that this weakness is somehow recognized by Beijing or by the relevant staff who are overseeing these things. And in, in the Turkish case, I see in the last couple of years, I see a change of policy, a sort of editorial switch. You know, we see, for instance, the Chinese uh, embassy giving full-page advertorial, paying for the advertorial stuff, uh, sometimes full-page. We have seen, for instance, celebrations of the 100th anniversary of the CCP. You, you would just read these items as news, but they are actually written by propagandists uh, of sorts. So they are like very self-celebratory in nature. They are uh, trying to give an explicitly favorable image of the Chinese Communist Party or China in general. And And they are like published in Turkish. They are now published in uh, Turkish language newspapers, which doesn't really have anything to do with China. I mean, they, the, the audiences, the, the people, the readers that actually buy these newspapers or click on their digital products, they are not really pro-China. 
But now they are able to access the, these kinds of advertorials or read relatively favorable news items, articles on China, sometimes produced also. This is one, one way, these advertorials, full page advertisement, etc. But there are also items, news articles written by Turkish authors, columnists, uh, famous journalists, etc. We have seen these during the pandemic. We have seen, for instance, several Turkish journalists like having a rather favorable perspective on uh, China's pandemic measures, the zero case policy, etc., or large-scale quarantine measures. So we have a diversity of uh, favorable views, but they're not always published or released by the Chinese government, but sometimes by the Turkish journalists, by the Turkish newspapers, media outlets themselves. And uh, I'm not trying to link these together in a, in a conspiratorial relationship, because there are also people, a lot of people today, which find merit in China, not because they are paid by the Chinese government, or they are somehow associated with the Chinese propaganda establishment. But for ideological reasons, for pragmatic reasons, they see China, for instance, as a, as a very important country, as a great power that would be able to balance the United States. And since Turkey is also a country which has a rather you know, strong anti-American sentiment, I think this is, this is creating a sort of leverage for China. In itself, the anti-American sentiment in Turkey has become a soft power source in itself that China may be able to use for its own good. Yeah, that's really interesting because that's the, one of the points that you make in the paper is that, you know, this turn towards local actors is also, you can associate that with the turn towards, you know, local concerns. And as you say there, one of the big hallmarks of Turkish public debate really is this strong anti-US sentiment for various mm -hmm. reasons. And as you say there, you know, China's promise to balance US power is very attractive to many. So that really does affect the way that many people look at China. You know, they see China as this balancing power, a potential alternative pole. You write in the paper that, quote, while Turkey's anti-China sentiment is deep and multifaceted, the Turkish public has long embraced an even stronger anti-Americanism that cuts across ideological divisions in the country. Erdogan's government appreciates China due to its own power struggles and diplomatic hurdles with the West, while Turkey's secular opposition admires China because of its anti-imperialist credentials. China's local appeal, therefore, may have more to do with the country's global status vis-a-vis -vis the United States in the future rather than its concrete soft power strategies in Turkey. And I think that's a really interesting point that you bring out there, which is that Turkey's relationship with China is not, you can't look at it in isolation. It's always related to Turkey's perception as well of the West and looking for these alternatives. And that's a, a search that's been going on for decades, really. And it's only now probably coming into even more prominence. Uh, yes. I mean, if you look at the, the soft power potential for China, the things that work in most countries, for instance, uh, overseas Chinese communities, most of the time they, they act as an intermediary between Chinese mainland and the host country, wherever they are living. Some of these items, some of these soft power items are not really working in Turkey. And there is the big, of course, we failed to mention this, but there is the big Xinjiang issue, obviously. And we have, a, I mean, we don't have a Chinatown, but we have the Uyghur population uh, in several cities, 
you have big communities that fled from China. We, we don't even use the name Xinjiang, really. We use, most often, we use East Turkestan or Do Turkestan in Turkish. So you have these communities, small communities, which are very much able to shape opinions on China. And this is basically the opposite of what China intends to do in, in soft power terms. So it's not only that the Chinese propaganda is weak, but you also have uh, the tendency, I mean, you, you, you are more likely to hear just the opposite views on China based on the, of course, grave human rights injustices that are, uh, you know, taking place right now and for so many years. So in that instance, I think anti-Americanism becomes, anti-American sentiment becomes a key feature because it is able to bring together, you know, given the, Tur- uh, the domestic polarization in Turkey today, there are very few things that you can bring people together from the opposite poles of the domestic uh, spectrum, political spectrum. And anti-American sentiment is just one of those few things. I mean, you can bring uh, a secular opposition person and a conservative people who is probably voting for the Justice and Development Party. You can you can basically create some kind of common ground based on the anti-American sentiment. And they may have completely different reasons to dislike the United States, but still anti-Americanism gives you strong common ground to uh, bring those people together. The basic promise of, you know, balancing out the United States. I really think this is creating some vibes in Turkey, some positive vibe on China, which China cannot deliver on its own or with with any of its soft power tools. And I wonder as well if there's not almost a subconscious emotional aspect of this, you know, the resentment that has built up in relations with the US has really built up over decades. There's a dynamic there of the US being this major power, the global cultural and political hegemon and Turkey being lectured to essentially by this, always having to take the US's considerations into account. And that relationship has built up these resentments due to that power differential. But that keen sense of resentment is not really there yet with China. You know, China's a much more remote, more abstract reality, really. So it doesn't really arouse those same complicated emotions. And more broadly, the rise of China as a global power fits very neatly into a lot of those narratives of the developing world creating alternative poles to the West. And they really do have a very enthusiastic audience, I think, in Turkey. So what do you make of that argument that when Turkish public opinion looks to China, it doesn't have that same sense of resentment that's built up in terms of the power differential with the US, which is a very intimate and very fraught relationship. China is a more remote reality. It may be a rising power, but it's not really a daily reality in in the lives of Turkish citizens. And therefore, you can project basically whatever you want emotionally onto it. And very much it fits into that framework of anti-US sentiment that we're talking about. Yes, I think, I mean, of course, it's uh, it's very difficult to talk about emotions and how sentiments may get to shape reality or perceptions in an academic sense. But I can give you examples from the public opinion polls, for instance. If you ask people if they, I mean, in Turkey, whether they have a favorable perception of China, six or seven people out of ten says no. We don't like it. Uh, we have an unfavorable opinion. And again, that there is a you know very complex background to this from uh, nationalist history writing to the Xinjiang problem to the Cold War sentiment, etc. 
it's very complex, but uh, I think it's still interesting because you don't really have uh, that much of an intense relationship with China. I mean, we barely had any communication throughout the 20th uh, century, and we don't certainly have all these, you know, bad memories and uh, all these policy differences we had with our, you know, close ally in NATO. The United States. There is very little, I mean, much less going on with China if you compare it with the United States. But then again, when you see another public opinion poll, and this time, if you ask Turkish people which country they would be, you know, they would feel much more threatened by, whether it's US or China, China lags far behind the United States. So, in terms of threat perceptions, if you think about like challenges to Turkish policymaking or Turkish interests, etc., way more people pick the United States over China. So it's not like people actually like China or they would have this very favorable opinion of China, but in relative terms, because generally speaking, public opinion polls reflect very few countries that Turkish people would actually like. Azerbaijan is one of them, usually at the, at the top of the charts. Pakistan may be another, but you have very few countries where Turkish public says they have a favorable opinion of, okay? So we, we need to make this in relative terms. And the United States, if you put it in relative terms, is always lagging behind China. Even if the Turkish people have this unfavorable opinion of China in general, well, they have a much more intense and complicated relationship with the United States. Of course, it's it's very hard to analyze that sentiment because, again, uh, the historical relationships, the ups and downs of the Turkish-American uh, relations are also I mean, there have been like hundreds of articles and books on this already, but uh, the, this relationship is much more intense and we had basically much more going on with the United States than China. So in a way, I guess, yes, China still remains the more or less the untainted great power for us uh, in this part of the world. Now, one of the key issues that always comes up in Turkey-China relations, for obvious reasons, is the Uyghur issue. Obviously, Turkey is host to a pretty large population of Uyghurs originating in in Western China, in Xinjiang. And, you know, obviously there are these ethnic and linguistic ties between Turks and Uyghurs. Uyghurs speak a Turkish language that's pretty understandable, actually, from the Turkish, for, for much of the Turkish population. And there's this uh, religious affinity as well, of course. And it's always been a bit of a thought, a, a bit of a stone in the shoe, really, of Turkey's relations with China. But as you point out in your work, in recent recent years, it's it's not been as big a problem, actually, in relations. It's kind of been de-emphasized by Turkish officials for various reasons that we could speculate on. But could you just talk about this issue, the sense that in recent years, perhaps it's fallen down the agenda a little bit, despite the increased reports of oppression of Uyghurs in China. It's actually rather fallen off the agenda. And whereas, you know, Erdogan, I believe in 2008 or 2009, said, you know, what China was doing was basically a genocide against Uyghurs. He really doesn't use that kind of rhetoric anymore and it's really not been emphasized diplomatically and it's not been such a huge issue in the Turkish media either really. If you could just talk about the recent course of that issue and why you think perhaps it's fallen off the agenda a bit. 
Uh, well, there are two important dates uh, in uh, Sino-Turkish relations. I mean, there are many, but I think uh, the two are much more important than the others. Uh, one is the strategic partnership deal, which was signed in 2010. I think that's like a starting point. I mean, th- th- that's the point that they, they have decided to engage in a more substantial way, not only in economic terms, but in other areas as well. And the second very important date for me is the military coup attempt, which is in 2016. That coup attempt basically made things much worse with the Europeans and uh, and the United States and much, much better with Russia and China. Because, uh, you know, Turkish government felt that, you know, Chinese and Russian governments were basically giving them the support that they have, uh, they deserved after this, you know, the, the military coup attempt, etc. So uh, their extent of friendly support or solidarity with the Turkish government was much more felt after that. And I think 2016 becomes an important pillar in, in that sense as well. I mean, in terms of the Xinjiang issue, because in order to get friendly with the Chinese regime, obviously you need to play down the problems in Xinjiang. There is no other way. I mean, uh, most of the developing world, especially in the Middle East, in order to have favorable relations, bilateral relations uh, with China, most of these governments uh, had to play down or remain silent on on the Xinjiang issue. Besides that, there is also the investment and uh, economic ties. Belt and Road Initiative, Turkish government has been very much favorable to BRI from the beginning onwards, uh, signing it in 2015 or so. And uh, Turkey has been keen on playing a major role in the land transportation systems uh, that would tie Asia with Europe. I mean, Turkey projects itself to be like a central player in this. So there is an economic motivation, there is a geopolitical motivation, I mean, diplomatic, political side of the story. So I think it's all related to that. I mean, uh, Xinjiang issue was sort of sacrificed in order to have better ties with China. But I also see Turkey recently, I mean, joining efforts. Maybe it's not outspoken in this as before, at least not doing it in unilateral terms. But I have also seen the Turkish government, you know, signing petitions uh, or acting together with European countries in, for instance, in in UN General Assembly uh, resolutions or other multilateral platforms. So maybe Turkey is not like acting alone in this. I mean, Turkey used to be in 2009, Turkey was one of the few outspoken countries on this, taking major diplomatic initiative, etc., But now, rather than doing these things individually, sometimes we see Turkey joining others' efforts, uh, usually the Western countries' efforts. But this is also, they are very careful. You know, they are trying not to anger China and not to take a very explicit perspective, or at least not, not using an explicit language on this. I think there's also perhaps a sense that I've seen reflected also in Turkish official comments, but elsewhere as well, that this, you know, the Uyghur issue is exploited by the West to hit at China. And then, you know, Turkey doesn't want to be a part of that campaign. And it's almost used that line as an excuse, really, to to not take a strong position on the issue. Uh, you know, you see it in places obviously like Aydınlık, you know, the newspaper. But I've also, like I say, seen Turkish officials, I believe including Çavuşoğlu and Erdogan, voice variations of this theme in a more 
diluted way on a couple of occasions. So how widespread do you think that sentiment is? And is it sincerely held or is it just used, as I say, as a, an excuse really to not upset Beijing? Well, of course, the you know Chinese uh, soft power or uh, media engagements has a component that that relates to the Xinjiang issue, obviously, because this is this has been the most difficult issue to sort out from the perspective of China. I mean, this is uh, one of the key issues, you know, why you would have a, a negative or unfavorable sentiment towards China in Turkey. Therefore, they were eager to send like Turkish journalists to make visits. To, to to Xinjiang, they would make these designated like trips to this area. And the main purpose was basically to change the story that, you know, nothing wrong is going on in Xinjiang. What is being done is basically a counterterrorism measure, you know, of sorts. And some of we have seen some of the Turkish journalists when they came back from from Xinjiang, uh, from those trips, we have seen uh, some of those uh, Turkish journalists write columns or, you know, articles on this, that there is this big exaggeration outside, particularly in the West. This is being used as a leverage against China, although the human rights violations, etc. in Xinjiang is not that bad or, you know, there's a lot of exaggeration. So I think this kind of public sentiment is still not strong. I think very few people actually buy this. But again, this comes back to my former, uh, let's say, previous comment on anti-Americanism. Because anti-American sentiment is so strong that you can basically use it to legitimize anything. You can just put that narrative out there that, you know, the West is sort of using this in order to revenge China or put their economy, uh, you know, down, etc. I think there may be some sort of ideological leaning to buy this kind of story. Again, I I don't think this is dominant, but uh, these kinds of stories you wouldn't even hear like 10 years ago. I think it's important that we now can identify such stories, such pro-China narratives easily. I mean, they are able to get published uh, in a Turkish newspaper. So that's like a stepping stone, I think. They're not able to create a positive vibe yet, but I don't know, maybe five, ten years from now, we may have a much stronger sentiment or much favorable account on those kinds of stories. Uh, next question is about Dol Perinçek. Dol Perinçek is perhaps the first name who comes to mind when we think of pro-China public figures in Turkey. And he's a very colourful character, really, with a colourful past that goes back decades, really, in Turkey's political media landscape. And he's got a, a very unique position, really. Could you just introduce us to Perinçek, you know, where he emerged from and how important is he today in the public debate in Turkey about relations with China, relations with the US and also relations with Russia, actually? Well, you remember the uh, radio Peking broadcasts, I mean, Chinese Radio International, the former kind, Cold War kind, when they were broadcasting in Turkish language, etc. And they had a rather small audience in, in late 1950s and particularly in mid-1960s. Well, Doğu Perinçek was probably one of those listeners, part of the audience, because he is, of course, leader of the one of the most well-known let's say, left-wing cliques in Turkey. I mean, he was part of the larger left-wing student movement in the 1960s, the mass student movement at the time, uh, 68 generation, if you will. 
but his party, the, the organization that he built, and he was the acting leader for so many years, he remained one of the key figures in the first and you know most well-known Maoist organization, the one with an explicit Maoist orientation in the late 1960s and early uh, 1970s. Of course, throughout the 1970s, you will have other Maoist or pro-China organizations in Turkey, student organizations and left-wing organizations. But Duhu Perinçek remained one of the most well-known figures of that movement and the party as such. And the party has uh, renamed itself several times. Along with the renaming, of course, comes a lot of ideological reorientations. So what Duhu Perinçek established in late 1960s didn't remain the same organization or didn't basically remain unchanged. What remained unchanged is the pro-China leaning that stayed the same. But basically, uh, the organization, this is the, the contemporary name is the Patriotic Party or Vatan Partisi. The pro-China leaning remained the same, but the, the Turkish domestic, in terms of domestic Turkish politics, the orientation has been sort of changing. There is a little bit of Kemalism, there is a little bit of left-wing politics, but there is a lot of nationalism as well. So it's it's an interesting mix of uh, ideologies. But again, Du Perinçek and his party remains pro-China. And you can, when you follow the trajectory, because China has changed so much, I mean, since Mao Zedong's death in 1976, if you wonder how they remained in the same trajectory, you see that they, they, they keep following the Chinese Communist Party's lead in this. The ideological changes that the Chinese Communist Party went through during the 1970s and 80s, basically the Operinchek group followed those transformations. And of course, now today they, they are one of the key advocates of uh, the Eurasianist foreign policy or Avrasyaji in Turkish which basically proposes that Turkey should leave NATO or should do away with the United States and join its hands with China and Russia and become part of the Asian powers rather than a Western-leaning country. Another key issue in recent years in Turkey-China relations has been Turkey's initial adoption of the Sinovac vaccine in the COVID-19 pandemic. Turkey put all its eggs in that basket in the initial phase of the vaccination campaign before basically moving away towards Pfizer. And two years on from that process, it's almost a forgotten episode now. But as you have written in a fascinating and detailed breakdown of that whole process, there were various complications with the procurement of Sinovac from China. And there was a lot of public skepticism in Turkey as well about that particular vaccine. Could you just talk about that vaccine process and what it revealed about the Turkey-China relationship, as well as public attitudes towards China? The Chinese vaccine was, it was a very interesting, uh, let's say, uh, juncture in Sino-Turkish relations because China made good, had always have like a bad reputation in Turkey. I mean, many people throughout the 1990s and until recently looked down on Chinese products, etc. They would think not that nice of, of Chinese products. Uh, but I think the, the vaccine was important in the sense that, you know, China was ready to provide us with this very critical and uh, relatively sophisticated substance because this is a medical product. And at that juncture, you know, when it first came to Turkey, 
there was all sorts of like optimism with regard to uh, the vaccination process and especially for the medical professionals and for the elderly, for the very sick. This was like a lifesaver. And if China could follow on that, like with, with delivery, with tests and, you know, all this data on, on the vaccine, because in due course, we have, we have come to understand that Pfizer vaccine or other Western vaccines, the new technology vaccines were much more sophisticated than the Chinese one, not only in terms of the technological progress that they are representing, but also in efficacy. So I think this 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 was a great opportunity for China to begin with, but they couldn't really follow on that. And this was this was a mishap. I mean, nothing nothing on purpose, obviously. And the efficacy ratings were low. Uh, we have heard about fifty uh, percent, fifty or something percent that came from Brazil. And I, I I think ultimately it killed the whole soft power potential of the Chinese vaccine. But in addition to this, besides the scientific and technology side of the story, you, of course, had to deal with a lot of domestic pressure in Turkey. I mean, many people, and these are usually in opposition, obviously, because this is a this is a government decision. As much as this was a Chinese vaccine, it was the Turkish government that picked this vaccine. And as the efficacy ratings were not that good, this has become a whole domestic affair in a, in a very polarized political setting inside Turkey. Therefore, I mean, my understanding is that and, and the Turkish government ultimately had to let go of the Chinese vaccine and had to uh, switch to the Western alternatives. I mean, Chinese vaccine, we still use it. But in terms of delivering that soft power potential, I think the whole attempt w was a failure. And this was not unrelated to the Turkish public opinion on China, all these you know, different factors that I mentioned before, you know, how it plays out with regard to our unfavorable opinions of China, etc., the historical reasons. But there was also an added element of domestic polarization. This also showed us how, for instance, Turkish government had to work on these highly skeptical notions of China in Turkey as well. I mean, the pandemic has shown us that Turkey's unfavorable public opinion on China can actually become a very big issue, not for China, but also for the Turkish government, because let's not forget about all the deals. I mean, vaccine is just one product and one major example, but we also have all sorts of dealings with China today. We have swap deals, foreign exchange, we have uh, the Belt and Road Initiative and transportation networks, uh, all these infrastructure projects. Turkish government is very keen on, for instance, the Kanal Istanbul project and how, for instance, Chinese FDI make play a role in this. Therefore, from now on, any collaboration with China, any joint venture with China will need both the Turkish government and China to invest more in terms of public opinion, to, to change the public opinion into a more favorable dimension. Because otherwise, it's not going to be a sustainable relationship. That's my take on the issue in general. So vaccine was a big lesson for both China and the Turkish government. And one of the key issues where that might become more important is Turkey's relationship with Huawei. Turkey signed a deal with Huawei to build the country's 5G network in March 2022. It's not really an issue that has a great prominence in the Turkish media, for example. It's rarely talked about, rarely debated or discussed. I just wonder if you could update us to conclude, you know, what's going on on that front? Is there potential to expand that relationship? 
just uh, give us the lowdown on Turkey's deal with Huawei to build that 5G network in the country. Uh, well, we, we since March, we have seen, for instance, Istanbul Airport to start this new 5G project. I mean, Istanbul Airport is now advertising itself to become the first uh, 5G airport in Europe, etc. And that was, of course, uh, thanks to the uh, technological collaboration with Huawei. And Huawei is the company that uh, provides us with the 5G technology. But I think the, the problems, if we will have any problems on that front, it may become a key issue in the next couple of years. I mean, 5G, of course, is for now, it's basically we are talking about individual consumption. I mean, we all like the idea of faster communication and, uh, you know, we, we all like the idea of downloading much faster and much more efficiently. But there is a security dimension that may become relevant in the next couple of years. And of course, it's, I, I wouldn't want to speculate on that, but 5G is not only a communication issue. I mean, uh, there has been, for instance, some controversies relating to Turkey's NATO membership and how, for instance, Chinese 5G network may compromise the military or naval air force security and how it may compromise Turkey's engagement with NATO, etc. These are, of course, for now, it's just talk. We don't really know how 5G will work out. But I think that strategic choice on Turkish government's part, because there has been so many controversies regarding this, right, in the past couple of years, but Turkish government chose not to give them any consideration. So I think in, in that sense, Huawei, the relations with Huawei or, you know, making that choice is an indication in itself, regardless of what may happen tomorrow. I think uh, just like the vaccine, just like the BRI projects, just like all the other examples that we have talked about, I think Huawei is here to stay. And I think uh, in a geopolitical sense, not only in technological or pragmatic terms, it's a choice. It's, it's a deliberate choice promoted by the government and it reflects the pragmatism as much as political orientation. That was Chardash Unger. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 186. Don't forget, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.50 per episode. Episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more, and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.